Coming up on Golf Today, from struggle to triumph, Grayson Murray not to be denied at the Sony. He wins for the second time on the PGA Tour in a new chapter in his life's journey. And Fleetwood Mac played in front of a big crowd in Dubai, and it was Tommy edging out Rory. We'll dig into the meaning of their duel in the Middle East. And on this Martin Luther King Jr. Day, we reflect on the journey of diversity in golf with a number of special guests coming up on Golf Today. Golf Today. It's Golf Today on a special holiday Monday. Damon Hack alongside Eamon Lynch, Golf Week magazine. What's on your mind on this holiday Monday, Martin Luther King Jr. Day? It is, and it's typically a day when we end up having a conversation in this game about the idea of expanding it, pathways into this game, making mm. it a little bit more diverse. It's certainly a topic you're asked to discuss quite a bit around the country in various speaking engagements. Where are we in that? Yeah, I think golf has come a long way. I think golf continues to have a lot of work to do. We've seen some growth in terms of the young people that want to play the game, but the pathways are difficult. That's a good word you use because I still think there's a lot of work and growth and outreach that needs to happen. It's a very expensive game to play. It's a very exclusive game to play, but I do think some very important inroads have been made. Are the bodies that run this game doing enough? And I don't mean just governing bodies. I'm talking about all of the organizations that carry influence in this game. I think the appetite to do something was extremely strong back in 2020 during the COVID spring and summer. Of course, the George Floyd incident that happened, I think it opened a lot of people's eyes and attention to diversity and kind of the shortcomings uh, in business and definitely the business of golf as well. But we'll see how strong the appetite remains four years on. These are complicated questions and still complicated times. We have some very special guests joining us today to dig in to some of those topics in just a little bit. By the way, in case you were watching Sunday Night Football on NBC last night, Grayson Murray got the job done in the playoff at the Sony Open. Here's the moment you needed to see as we check out the eventual winning moment presented by Win Grips. I stayed up late aiming to watch this last night. This was mesmerizing. 38 feet, 7-inch birdie putt for Murray to defeat Ben On and Keegan Bradley on the first playoff hole. Murray now fully exempt on tour through 2026. His victory comes six years, five months, 22 days since winning the 2017 Barbasol. has been candid about his complicated past. He spoke openly about that after his win. I thought I was invincible coming out here as a 22-year-old winning as a rookie. Um, played three days hungover when I won. Um, best thing and worst thing that ever happened to me was, was winning my rookie year, but also feeling like I was invincible. And, um, you know, I, I, it took me a long time to get to this point. This was, that was seven years ago, so over seven years ago. And um, I'm, a different, I'm a different man now. And um, I would not be in this position right now today if I didn't, uh, you know, put that drink down eight months ago. You know, there were days where I didn't want to get out of bed. Um, I, I just thought I was a failure. I always looked at myself as a failure. I had... I thought I had a lot of talent that was just a waste of talent. And um, it was a bad place. But like I said, you have to have uh, you have to have courage. You have to have the willingness to um, to, to, to keep going. And um, lo and behold, that's what I did. And, um, you know, I'm here and, and I'm, I'm so blessed and I'm thankful. You mentioned kind of the effect of alcohol on arrogance or, or cockiness. Uh, Talent's kind of a contributor to that too, isn't it? Knowing what, what you've got. 
I think it is, but I was humbled by that because I felt like the guys who came out kind of my year, maybe a year in front of me, um, I felt like I had pretty much their talent, and they took off, and I didn't. So I think the arrogance, um, I kind of got humbled by that a little bit. Um, but I also was a little, um, I would say, um, I'm trying to think of the word for it. I, I, I was – I was a little jealous. I was a little jealous of the guys who came out my year or year before and had all that success, knowing that I was just as good as them. Um, and, you know, jealousy is not a good thing. I think we all have our own paths and we all have our own journeys and we all have our own ways of getting to where we want to be. And um, I'm 30 and I feel like starting now I can I can be the be the golfer that I've always wanted to be. Forgiveness is a big part of that. Mm -hmm. So you can forgive yourself for being envious and whatever yeah. else too, right? And mistakes you made in the past. Is that a big thing for you? It is. I think um, you got to give yourself grace. Um, we all make mistakes. I don't think anyone in this room has gone life without a mistake. Um, and, um, you know, you got you to gotta let go of the regrets. You got to let go of the... Uh, the people that you've, uh, you know, have um, let down, you got to say you're sorry and move on. And, um, you know, it's on them if they don't accept the apology. Um, but I, uh, going forward, I just, I just really want to um, make everyone happy and, and do the right things. You know, I mean, I met Grayson Murray when he was 17 years of age. That's 13 years ago at an AJGA event. I was working for Sports Illustrated, covering a piece, uh, writing a piece on Jordan Spieth. But I actually spent a lot of time with Grayson uh, on that day. I found him to be delightful, your normal 17-year-old teenager at the time. He had a lot of energy. He had a lot of dreams, big dreams. I think somewhere along the way, he got lost. He became very thin-skinned, immature, hard-headed, went down some, some Twitter uh, rabbit holes, got into some arguments, very combative. And it seems like he has come through on the other side. Yeah, where well, we stand today... Grayson Murray is evidence that turnarounds can happen, that demons can be silenced to some extent, because until this point, Grayson Murray was really evidence only that alcohol abuse and social media are a lousy combination. And it's not uncharitable to say that Grayson Murray has been one of the most polarizing guys on the PGA Tour for a long time, and not just with fans. And because that was one of the things that was noticeable yesterday. Normally when somebody wins on tour, like Chris Kirk, a very similar story of redemption last week, it, it gets a very positive response mm. from the fans out there in that kind of conversation. There was a lot of begrudgery around the Grayson Murray victory last night that was very evident because he's not going to win a Mr. Popularity contest and he's not going to win one in the locker room either. And he, he probably has a lot of relationships that need repaired out there between the conduct and comments that he, he's been responsible for over the years. Clearly, he's gotten his game in order, which mm. is thing number one from a career standpoint. But his comments there suggested that there are a lot of other areas of his life that he's been striving to make some progress in. The relationships that have been sundered along the way are probably still in some need of repair out there. But Certainly, you can say that the career has turned in the right direction. It's certainly in a better direction than he appeared to be a couple of years ago. It does sound like he wants to make amends. And to hear him talk about the jealousy that he had, I mean, you're talking about someone who was a peer a year with or away from the likes of Justin Thomas and Jordan Spieth, Ollie Schneider, Jans. I'm talking about some of the best teenagers in AJGA 
players of all time. And, and I'll say it again. I, I went to Arizona to interview Jordan Spieth. I was writing a Jordan Spieth story, and, and Grayson Murray was there. He was there, and he was a part of the story. It's funny. They had a little money game, and, and Grayson ended up beating Jordan. And he later, years later, told me that might have been the last time Grayson ever beat Jordan Spieth in an event. And he had a little fun and a little self-deprecation in that moment. But I love the fact that he's admitting that he came out and was bitter and was thin-skinned and made a lot of mistakes because, doggone it, Amy, he surely has. But it does seem like, and listen, some people in society, they do love a redemptive story. They love a comeback story. Don't want to see someone on the ground, but they also like to see them pick themselves back up. I guess the question is, how far does he have to pick himself back up? Yeah, and that's going to be an interesting perception difference here because you... A lot of that is underpinned by the personality and, right. the, and the perception of the player before mm. the redemption story began. And a guy like Chris Kirk, he's kind of somewhat under the radar, an easy guy to root for now. Grayson Murray is going to be a more difficult guy for people to root for. That's just the simple reality that the perception of Grayson, and sure, he was a great junior talent and a great rookie year. And people thought he's got a great career ahead yeah. of him. And then as you mentioned, went into all of these kind of controversial, uh, obnoxious rabbit holes where he lost any kind of public support among hardcore fans that he would have had. So it's going to be interesting to see if the empathy will, of fans will be there. Grayson's been guilty plenty of times in his career of refusing to show empathy mm. for others. He's in a situation now in the last couple of years where he's more deserving of it than he was ever willing to give anyone else. In the past, he probably deserves a little bit more of that from fans now in terms of the strides he's made and the strides he continues to make going forward. Let's continue this conversation as we welcome in Rex Hoggan and Ryan Lavender and talk about Grayson Murray now, a two-time winner on the PGA Tour. This is the Golf Today Roundtable. Lav, I want to start with you. Is there a road back for, for Grayson Murray to be kind of welcomed back in the good graces of the game? Well, I certainly think so, Damon. You look at the last two weeks on the, on the PGA Tour and the winners with Chris Kirk, and now Grayson Murray, back-to-back -back redemptive stories, players who seem to be on the path to, to self-destruction, who, who found a greater purpose, who got help, who sought help uh, when, when they desperately needed to, and now their career seems to be on, uh, on the upward trajectory. I mean, I've, I've covered Grayson Murray for a, a very long time, wrote a long feature on him back in 2017, which was kind of haunting to reread, just the, the difficulties that he had even seven years ago with anxiety and depression, how that turned into self-medicating with alcohol. I certainly think that Grayson Murray is deserving. If, if This might not even be a second chance. This might be his third or fourth chances. Here I'm now at age 30. He sounds like a completely different person, humbled, appreciative. He's no longer angry. He's no longer arrogant. He's no longer jealous of uh, some of his peers. Uh, for me personally, having covered him for about 15 years, uh, I thought it was a, a, I thought it was an inspiring performance and a victory for him on Sunday. Rex, the, a few years ago, Grayson Murray admitted that he'd had a, an alcohol-fueled issue at this very tournament. He sent some intemperate tweets saying that the PGA Tour had done nothing to help him, which did kind of raise an issue at the time of how much obligation the Tour has towards the health and well-being of independent contractors outside the ropes as well. But even, you know, this was rookie orientation week on the PGA Tour as well. Should there be a more proactive approach, do you think, in the tour in terms of helping guys who might be ill-equipped to deal with all of the stresses and the scrutiny that comes with the life that they've just signed up for? 
Amy, and I think 100% the PGA Tour can do a better job of not just preparing players. That's a very good example that you gave. Rookie orientation was last week, and there probably wasn't a lot talked about mental health and how you spend your off time. And there's a lot of off time when you're out on the PGA Tour. I, I think the other half of this equation, though, to be fair to the PGA Tour, I think it needs to be tackled as a society a little bit better. In fairness to the Tour and everyone around it, when you look back to last week, and Chris Kirk going through very, very similar situations. I remember talking with Scott Hamilton, Chris Kirk's swing coach, last week about everything that he had gone through. And he said that he had been with him throughout the entire process of all of those dark days and the demons he was facing and never knew it, that they would have dinner together, maybe have a glass of wine or two, and then Kirk would go back to his room. It wasn't until after the fact, when he admitted openly that, look, I have a problem with this, that he even realized that there was an issue. So to get back to your question, yes, the tour needs to find a better way. And I think it has something to do with it. It's a testament to the lifestyle that you have so much downtime and you're in your own head so often. You're thinking about a million things you could have done better on the golf course. It's really, really easy to go down one of those dark paths. And I think the tour and the players could do a better job of tackling. Well, Rex, the PJ Tour clearly has its hands full in this current era and stage of professional golf in terms of the, the framework agreement and where that is. We hear Webb Simpson telling Golf Week magazine that the, the model between the PJ Tour and sponsors is broken, seeing Wells Fargo not re-upping, eventually Farmers not as well. What say you about this current structure and maybe the inability of some business or just the, the choice of some business not to continue to sponsor and patronize PGA Tour events? I think, Damon, you hit it right on the head. I think this is a choice. Let's look at Wells Fargo specifically. I remember talking with an executive from Wells Fargo last year during the tournament, and this was before they had made the choice to get out of the tournament and not sponsor it any longer. And the conversation went down the road of essentially the PGA Tour asked Wells Fargo to double their investment in that tournament. It went from essentially two years ago, a $9 million purse to a $20 million purse last year. Now, there were some assurances from the tour, and there was some stopgap money in between, but that's what Wells Fargo was being asked to do going forward. From a corporate standpoint, this executive explained to me that how can you explain that ROI, return on investment, that we have gotten a really, really good field since the beginning of time at Quail Hollow. They had always gotten a really successful field regardless of what the purse was. And now they were being asked to double that investment for essentially the same purse. You're going to see corporations that have a harder and harder time writing these checks going forward. And it has nothing to do with the product. I thought that Webb Simpson gave a really good interview this week to Golf Week magazine pointing out that SSG, the, the group that's led by Fenway Sports, they want to get in golf. They want to get into the PGA Tour business because they see it as a successful business. So I th do think there is a bright spot there. But when you look at tournaments, you didn't even mention Honda stepping away from being the tournament sponsor of the South Florida event for decades, the longest running sponsor on the PGA Tour. So I do think this is something the Tour is going to have to tackle and it's going to be something that they're going to have to grapple with going forward. Yeah, I certainly think that Webb Simpson, Rex, was was just spitting facts here. I mean, the model is broken. Why would a, why would a, a sponsor pony up even more money, 13 to $15 million overall, to get the exact same product, except that product might actually be a little bit worse when you have fewer of the top-ranked players in the field or some of the, the marquee attractions, whether it's Phil, Bryson, uh, Brooks Kepka, whatever the case may be, you know, assuming there's no retraction with some of these purse sizes and the $20 million signature events, you know, the, the model just has to change to support them in the future. Webb Simpson was, was, was absolutely right. And I think that's what the future of the PGA Tour is going to look like, whether there's more private equity money flowing in or some of these events fall into the championship management arm as well. Rex, is this a PGA Tour problem 
or a player problem? Because there seems to be a sentiment that the players at the top who are really driving this direction think, I'm fine. I'm going to get all of this Saudi money. I'm going to get the private equity money to hell with everyone else. I think it's a little bit of both, Eamon, to be honest with you. I mean, if you look at the business model, and I think what Webb was referring to is maybe a short-term issue. When you look at what the PGA Tour went to, designated events last year, now they've renamed them to signature events, that was going to be a huge outlay, and they were going to have a hard time making that sustainable. That's the direction they're heading right now, both with Fenway Sports, SSG, as well as the ongoing negotiations with Saudi Arabia's Public Investment Fund. The other half of that conversation with Webb Simpson there, just to go back to it, was he kind of talked about the greed. In the game and how the young players no longer value maybe the things that were valued by players that just came out as early as 10 years ago because i think the idea has changed that there is an expectation if you're a young player coming out of college that you felt like you need to get paid maybe more so than players have in the past so i would say both i think that's a fair assessment rex there was a or sorry lav there was a heated commentary going around last night on the car yuan drop on the 18th hole at the Sony where his ball appeared to at least have gone, it was certainly heading towards hospitality. There's some debate as to whether or not it cleared hospitality or got lost in the hospitality tent. And the video was somewhat inconclusive despite the tour saying and rules officials saying that there was a virtual certainty that it was lost in that tent. Uh, leaving aside the fact that, you know, the rules were applied as the tour sees them, that they're always generous to players in that kind of situation and stands around the 18th hole. My question is, how is this compatible with encouraging people to gamble on this game, which the Tour clearly is trying to get its share of the sports betting market out there. But when you have situations like this where it doesn't just involve Caru and involves other players who are impacted by where he finishes in the tournament because the drop is considered sort of generous, by, by most fans. Is that really compatible with the idea of bet betting on golf? I, th I think you first have to go with, with the PGA Tour follow the, the, the letter of what the, the rules were here and that players were entitled to TIO relief <laughs> if, it, if it is, quote-unquote, virtually certain that the ball finished in an area that is TIO. The, the, the video certainly appeared inconclusive to us, but the tour also said that they interviewed folks in the area, and then they said there was at least a virtual certainty that that's where the ball finished. And so the rules are written, but there's always going to be some sort of subjectivity in how they're applied. I know, Eamon, you probably did not watch the football game on Sunday night, but Matthew Stafford very clearly could have uh, gotten a roughing the passer penalty in the second quarter that could have potentially led to more points. So there's always going to be some subjectivity. I think golf just, just kind of now finds itself in line with other sports where there could be gambling ramifications and no one knows that better than Carl Yuan not just the gambling repercussions but the, the margins on the PJ Tour are so thin for players and players in the PJ Tour membership this was an extra roughly hundred thousand dollars in his pocket for a player who very narrowly lost out on his PJ Tour card finishing 126 on the PJ Tour's FedEx Cup points list and then ultimately moves to 125 when John Rahm defects and so I, I hear what you're saying but I'm not necessarily sure it's a it's a gambling issue. Yeah, could have been a missed the pass interference call last night in that Lions Rams game as well. Rex, I want to ask you a, a similar question: Is the PGA Tour ready for all of the murky, dark areas that exist in the area of gambling? Do you think all the eyes have been dotted and the T's have been crossed? 
Let's start right here, real quick, Damon. Eamon sounds like someone who took a bad beat on this particular <laughs> bet. So, yes, I, I think this is going to become the norm going forward when we think about exactly where the game is when it comes to gaming. I, I thought Anna did a really, really good job last week in an interview on Golf Central with the Tour's Senior Vice President of Gaming and Media. And what that person said stood out on two levels. He said it was an inevitability. And for that, he said, one, gambling was going always going to come to golf. It was going to come to sports. As soon as it was legalized in the States, it was going to become part of the fabric of our sport. The other half of it is these types of conversations, they were also going to be inevitable. Everyone, someone gets a drop that maybe someone watching from home doesn't agree with or doesn't understand. There's always going to be these questions. It doesn't make us any different than any other sport. You talk about watching that football game last night. I actually lived with someone who had some bets on that game, and that young man had play to say about some of the calls, and I think that's just part of being in mainstream sports. <laughs> For the record, I've never actually placed any kind of sports bet. It's actually against company policy, as you boys know. But we're going to take a quick break here, but we're going to be right back with the Ralph Cramden and Ed Norton of Golf Channel right here. Or is it the Alice? Trixie. We'll be right back. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle, follow your crave. We're back in golf today. A few months ago in Rome at the Ryder Cup, the pairing of Tommy Fleetwood and Rory McIlroy proved pretty much unbeatable. They were dubbed Fleetwood and Mac, played both foursome sessions, came away with two points for Europe, but this weekend they went from being partners to opponents. Sure did. Dubai Invitational, inaugural event, final hole, Rory with a one-shot lead on 18. Snipes this one left, trying to play a draw. And that one got wet. Yeah, past the fans, over that cart path, into the water, shake of the head, door open for the Englishman. Who led the field in strokes gained approach this week in Dubai. With shots like this, he'd also birdied 17. Gorgeous shot. He has a home in Dubai, as Rory McIlroy did for a time. This is not a safe par. Asking a little bit too much there. You know, these players shaking off the rust of the offseason, but here's an opportunity. Tommy Fleetwood for the win. How about it? Fleetwood Mac put on a show. It was Tommy Fleetwood outdueling one of his best friends in the game. A one-shot victory for Tommy as we continue our roundtable and bring back Rex Hoggard and Ryan Lavner. Rex, what do you think? You know, a positive week for Rory McIlroy, even in defeat, or are you shaking your head at that three-putt at 14 and that wobble on 18? Probably the three-putt on 14 is the one that gets me more because he was staring at that eight iron like he could not have hit it any better, and you just expect a player of Rory McIlroy's caliber to be able to make that birdie putt and to go on a run, end up closing out the tournament. So that one probably surprises me a little bit more than the drive on 18 simply because he had been struggling with his driver certainly all day long on Sunday. I'm encouraged. I think Rory was encouraged when you listen to his comments after that round simply because 
he admitted it himself. You're going to have sort of these mental lapses when you show up for the first event of the year. You're going to have to knock off some rust. Certainly, there's plenty of rust for Rory to knock off, but all of it is correctable, I think, in his mind. When he looks at the mistakes he made, the three-putt, the two water balls on Sunday, all of those things happened, and yet he still had a really good chance at victory. On the other side of this, I think Tommy Fleetwood probably takes a lot from this particular victory, only because of the, the caliber of field. I think coming off the Ryder Cup, as Eamon pointed out, he had to be very encouraged. But when you get a victory against that level of player that early in the year, I think it could actually free Tommy up for the rest, at least the next couple of months. Ryan, this didn't seem like a very serious week for a lot of those guys. We had John Huggan on the show from Dubai last week. He said he was amazed how many players had come up to him and said it was a, a very easy start to the year for them. It's kind of an elevated member guest in some ways. But in that context, does the, the victory, you think, give Fleetwood more confidence than the loss would hurt McElroy? Well, I think that's definitely fair to say. I mean, you just look at the way that, that Rory handled himself on the 18th hole. The, the Masters, this this was not. I know he's very close to Tommy Fleetwood, but had this been a tournament of higher stature, he would not have been fist bumping his opponent. He would not have been hugging his opponent on the green. He would not have been walking off the, the 18th green with his arm slung over his shoulder as he did with Tommy Fleetwood on Sunday. When you look at either the, the quad earlier in the week or the, the tee shot uh, in the water with an iron or the three putt from two feet, within the water ball on 18. This was obviously a warm-up event for Rory. And yet I do think it was actually somewhat meaningful for Tommy Fleetwood. Now a seventh win on the DP World Tour. But but Tommy Fleetwood did not win on the PGA Tour last year, despite being fifth on the PGA Tour in strokes gain total. He was one of the best players on the PGA Tour. I remember talking to him at Eastlake uh, in late August at the end of the FedEx Cup playoffs. I said, how do you actually measure a successful season when you don't have a victory to show for it. And he was so process-oriented, saying he's just trying to put the pieces in place and then see where that adds up. It added up, at least in the second start of 2024, with a victory on the DP World Tour against the world number two. And I think that's actually pretty meaningful for him. Rex, there was a sideshow going on in Dubai around Ken Wyand, <laughs> who's the general manager of Michael Jordan's club down in Florida, who got a sponsor's invite. He finished 72 strokes behind Tommy Fleetwood. And, you know, he's a buddy of the guy who runs the tournament. He's a sponsor's invite. Who cares? But on the actual subject of sponsor's invites these days, where starts seem to be harder and harder to come by, particularly in elite events, I I'm curious where you think the tour needs to go with this, because three of the four sponsor's invites for the signature event at Pebble Beach in a few weeks have been decided. Two of them went to Webb Simpson, Peter Malnati, ultimately deserving guys, but they're both policy board members as well. Do you think the tour is going to face an issue where they need more transparency exactly around what the guidelines are, particularly when there are fewer and fewer spots in more and more lucrative tournaments? When I saw that in the notes coming up to tonight's show, I, I had to kind of go back to last week's show, and I think you and I had the conversation about the rookies who hoped to get into the Sony Open. Suddenly, they weren't in the field. They had been in the past, and that has everything to do with the new signature event reality on the PGA Tour. The PGA Tour said in a memo last November that they should expect 10% fewer starts. Now, most players aren't going to wrap their mind around that very quickly, but for most of those players, that means you're not going to play the Sony Open. You're probably not going to even play the American Express. So it is going to hit these players harder and to your point that's where these sponsor exemptions come into play now i'll kind of take the other side of this and when you look at the way sponsors exemptions have been handed out in the past versus now now that we have designated events now signature events 
at least into those signature events, the PGA Tour has kind of gone out of their way to give it as much clarity as possible. I was just looking this morning at that clarity for the Arnold Palmer Invitational, and they get four spots. Each one of them are assigned to a PGA Tour member in a specific category, and then a fifth spot to uh, the tournament host, which actually goes to a member of the Palmer Cup teams. So I, I think if you have that kind of clarity, most players are going to be fine with it. To your point, though, I think where this gets a little sideways, and I looked this up last year because I had a player actually ask me about it, and Charlie Hoffman was the example that I was given. Charlie Hoffman was on the policy board last year, and if you look at the category he was playing out of a limited category, he played 30 events last year on the PGA Tour. Every other player in that category on average only got 24 starts, and a lot of that has to do with Charlie Hoffman got seven sponsor exemptions to play on the PGA Tour last year. That stems directly from the idea that he was on the policy board. That is going to be a problem that the Tour is going to have to address. Finishing 72 shots behind the winner sounds like a typical weekend for me at the club. Rex and Lab, thank you so much for your time. Enjoy your Monday. <laughs> you too. Let's take a look at what's happening this week as the first Rolex Series event of the year gets underway with the Hero Dubai Desert Classic. Yeah, a couple straight weeks in Dubai. Some of the best players in the world will make the trek to Emirates Golf Club for the Hero Dubai Desert Classic coverage. We'll begin in the early hours on Thursday at 2.30 a.m. Eastern Time. And let's flash back to last year. Rory McIlroy made this clutch birdie on the 72nd hole to win his third Dubai Desert Classic victory. Final round, four on the par, 68, and that was good enough to beat Patrick Reed by a single stroke. Yeah, and Rory McIlroy in the field will look to defend his title this week. Tommy Fleetwood coming in hot, coming off that victory at Dubai Creek. You have the Champion golfer of 2023, Brian Harmon in the field, as well as Adam Scott, Masters champ, back in 2013. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. And please be joined now by Sinclair Edie Jr., National Links Trust Senior Advisor and member of the USGA Executive Committee. Prior to your work in the golf industry, Sinclair, you worked in the private sector in asset management. What drew you to golf in the first place? Well, when you when you work in the private sector, uh, you're expected to volunteer your time. You're expected to give back. And golf has always been a big part of my life, and I wanted to give back to the game. And so while I was working in the private sector, uh, I was asked to join the board of the first tier Greater Baltimore. Uh, you know, that was that was over 15 years ago, and I've been involved with golf and the first tee ever since. I believe it's important to give back whether you're working in the private sector whether you're working for a not-for-profit, you know, we all we all have a responsibility to give back to the next generation, to give back our time uh, and our knowledge and to mentors, those who are to come behind us. So that's how I got involved, and I'm still doing it today, Damon. Sinclair, you also work with the National Links Trust, which is a non-profit focused on protecting and maintaining the affordability of municipal golf in the United States. Is it fair to say that affordability can't be divorced from the idea and, and the goal of further diversifying the game? Amen. It's affordability and it's also accessibility. Uh, I think overall, uh, 
we've, we've made great strides in making golf more affordable, uh, but it's also, it's also that access. And that's one of the reasons why National Links Trust is undertaking these projects in Washington, D.C. It's provide greater access, not just to uh, golfers who played the game for years, but for new golfers and to reach out to a new generation of golfers. So to your point, I think it's important that, that golf remains affordable, but it also remains accessible in a way that's welcoming and open to all sorts of people. Sinclair, I want to go back to your time in Baltimore. What were the challenges and opportunities from your time at First Tee Greater Baltimore in attracting young people? You know, we're talking about a part of the country where poverty levels are upwards of 20% in Baltimore. Well, I would say the great thing, Damon, is that this was, we were, we were fortunate to have uh, a great player, a great African-American player, Tiger Woods, really doing great things in the game. And so during my time at the First Tee, it was really, kids came to the first tee because they heard about Tiger Woods. They actually thought that Tiger Woods was the first tee. You know, that wasn't true, necessarily true, but we had so many kids who came to the game just because of the things that he had brought and accomplished in the game. And so our challenge at the first tee was not really to bring kids to the game. Our challenge was to, was to sustain them in the game, to keep them playing at an early age and keep them playing uh, throughout their uh, their high school and, and college as well. Uh, one of the things that I always told, I always tell kids is that golf is a game of a lifetime and that you can play it while you're in high school, you can play it while you're in college, but it's a game you play your entire life. And that's the message that we're telling, we're telling kids is that we're going to start early and this is a game that's going to carry you through your entire life. On that point of it being a game of a lifetime, Sinclair, we, I'm curious what has been the most effective or impactful program in diversifying this game that you've seen? Because we tend to focus a lot on juniors and, and programs like the First Tee and Kids on Course, but are there lessons to be learned there for golfers who are older than juniors who perhaps aren't as, as welcome or as involved in the game as they would like to be? Well, you know, one of the things that we're working on at the USGA, a, a number of different things, Eamon, um, one of the things that's most exciting to me is the Pathways Internship which started uh, three years ago uh, at the Country Club at Brookline, and we continued it last year at LACC, and we will continue it again this year at Pinehurst during the U.S. Open. And we bring 20 kids in for an immersive experience. And what it's really about is, is telling the story that golf is not just a game to be played, but it's a game that you can have a career in, that you can be in, immersed in personally and, prof and professionally. And so one of the greatest things for me, as an executive committee member at the USGA, is seeing these kids in the Pathways program um, come to the US Open, but not only volunteer during the US Open, but to be engaged throughout the year. And we've had we've had 25 the first year, 20 in the 20 in the last two years, including 20 this year. What's most encouraging to me is that 40% of those kids are now working in the golf industry. So for me, it comes full circle. We start very early with kids in the first tee. And one of the things that we focus on at the USGA is providing opportunities for kids in the game long-term as a career professionally. Sinclair, I've met some of those kids uh, at Brookline. They're sharp, they're hungry, but there has been some pushback nationally against DEI programs compared to, say, 2020. From your position at the USGA and several golf-related boards, what have you seen in the golf space? Is the appetite still there for diversity programs? I think the appetite is still there, Damon. 
and I'll 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 phrase it I'll phrase it this way. I think it's about how intentional we are about programs. Are we looking for programs that look for predefined outcomes at the beginning, or are we looking for grassroots intentional programs uh, that really that really look to make an impact long term? For me, DEI doesn't start in the boardroom. It doesn't start in corporate America. It starts with young people. And that's one of the reasons why I've been so passionate about these junior uh, and youth golf programs, because I, I believe DEI starts in the hearts of children and the impact that you can have on them. Uh, that's not to say that we're not going to have programs, David, at the corporate, corporate level and national level. But for me, uh, seeing the impact of diversity and uh, sportsmanship and camaraderie that we have with young people, to me, they are the future of DEI, and that's the lens which I look through. Well, Sinclair, speaking of the corporate level, just last week, the Dallas Mavericks owner, Mark Cuban, said that diversity is good for his business. Why do you think companies and boards and organizations benefit from diversity? What is the positive of diversity? Quite simply, it's reflective of our communities, Damon. I mean, we don't, we don't have to look any further than that. We want our sports, we want the boardroom, we want corporate America to reflect our, the diversity and the richness of our communities. And so we're, we're all better when our boardrooms and our youth programs reflect the diversity which is inherent in our communities already. And so to Cuban's point, diversity has a positive and meaningful impact on business, but it's because we look at things through the lens of our community. And when businesses and when uh, not-for-profit organizations look and respond to the needs of our community, I think we all benefit. Sinclair, we appreciate your time on this very important American holiday. Look forward to seeing you at Pinehurst and throughout the golf year. Thank you so much, Damon. Thank you, Eamon. And wishing everyone a happy MLK Day. And you as well. As we go to break, we continue to remember and honor the life of Martin Luther King Jr. Golf Today is back after this. The 2024 LPGA Tour season gets underway this week, and there are so many tantalizing storylines. Another Solheim Cup, the Olympics, and open at St. Andrews, Lilia Vu, Roseanne, Nelly Corda. We're gonna review all of that with Paige McKenzie and Karen Stubbles. And the Champions Tour also kicks off this week. Lanny Watkins will be here to set the table, maybe break a few dishes as well, as only Lanny can. And on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, we're going to hear from a couple of voices who are helping expand pathways into this game. Golf Today continues now. Golf Today. It's another hour of golf today on a Monday, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Damon Hack alongside Eamon Lynch, Golf Week Magazine. We've got golf going on all over the world. Tours back in action. It's a fun, fun time of the year. But right now, I want to focus a little bit on the LPGA. I want to look back at some of the marquee events that took place during last year's LPGA season 2023. I tell you, it was a lot to take in. How about Lilia Vu? Do you remember year's first major, Eamon Chevron? I mean, this is Carlton Woods, UCLA's own Lilia Vu, captured her first major title with later win her second major at the AIG Women's Open. You want to talk about a command performance? 
And then talking about command performances in June and our first artist professional, Rose Zhang won her first LPGA Tour title at the Mizuho Americas Open just across the river from Manhattan at Liberty National Golf Club. One shot 82 at Liberty. Very next month at Pebble Beach, Allison Corpuz broke out in a major way, winning the U.S. Women's Open by three shots, one of the most historic golf courses in the world. And later that month, there was a picture-perfect homecoming for Celine Boutier, who won her first major title at the Mundi Evian Championship in her home country of France. And it wasn't close at all. She won by six strokes. How about the fall? Perhaps one of the most exciting Solheim Cups in competition history. Yeah, Celine was there. It was in front of a raucous Spanish crowd. Team USA, Team Europe found themselves in a 14-14 tie after it was all said and done because Europe had won the previous cup. Europe officially retained the cup in 2023. And then at the season finale, veteran Amy Yang con conquered Tiburon Golf Club, winning her fifth LPGA Tour title at the CME Group Tour Championship. Took home a check for $2 million. Very, very nice. How about the 2024 season kicks off this week. Lake Nona Golf and Country Club in Orlando, Florida. Former home, Hilton Grand Vacations Tournament of Champions. Now remember, for this event, tour winners from the last couple of seasons pair up with you know, big-time sports or entertainment celebrities. First-round coverage begins 1 p.m. Eastern on Thursday. And here is an overview of that schedule for 2024. 35 events. The tour will make a stop in 15 different states, 10 different countries. Really is a global tour now. 118 plus million dollars, the highest in tour history. And 16 of those tournaments will have purses of at least $3 million. So to preview this season, we want to bring together two of the people who spend more time covering the LPGA Tour than pretty much anybody else out there, our own Paige McKenzie and major champion Karen Stupples. Karen, I want to start with you on this Roseanne. She was such a story for so long in, in 2023. There was so much anticipation of what she would yeah. accomplish, and she wins her first start. But she's only had one top 10 in her last 10 starts. Is, is this what you expected, a kind of a, a period of adjustment as she realizes how tough the pro-life actually is? I think she even says as much herself. I mean, I've had a number of conversations with her about that very same thing. And I think that the biggest shock to her system was the amount of travel that the LPGA Tour has, you know, getting from point A to point B, the amount of work that goes into it. There's no, you know, having a week off, going back to class, living a normal life. You're literally moving on to the next tournament site uh, with the circus that is the LPGA Tour. There's very little respite. And for her, she's super accommodating too when it comes to media, interviews uh, with her fans as well. So she's taken a lot on board um, in a very short space of time, thrown into the Solheim Cup as well. And I think it's been a very quick adjustment for her, you know, into the life of a tour pro. And I, I think that she's had a good bit of time off now. And I think she'll know this coming year what's, what's ahead for her. Thrown into the Solheim Cup page and thrown on the cover of Golf Digest magazine in the October-November issue a wonderful article on the potential of this player and the talent she already has Paige can she be the face of this tour in terms of her marketability the tour always looking across sports name your sport looking for superstars I, I think she could bring in a mainstream audience because I think her story is compelling uh, she was a prodigy played incredible amateur golf is a well-known name amongst the golf community so certainly there, there's a potential that she could uh, continue to stretch the circle greater for women's golf. 
Um, but I just want to piggyback also off of what Karen was saying about her travel schedule and being hard on maybe her most recent results. But she played 14 LPGA events, 15 worldwide. And of those 15 events, it took place in eight different countries plus Hong Kong. So she wasn't just traveling week in and week out. She was traveling all over the world in that May to November stretch. Uh, so I'm looking at Rose Zhang for potentially, yes, she got her feet wet, will be under her getting ready for this 2024 season. Uh, I don't know if she has the kind of appeal in her golf game. Uh, with She doesn't have that overwhelming strength and power, which you typically look at for a dominant figure, somebody that's really popular, does something that other people can't do. Rosang makes just golf look easy because she does it well, um, but not in a superhuman way. Paige, two other people who made golf look easy last year, Lilia Vu and Ronin Yin, they're combined to win three major titles. What do you think is a reasonable expectation for them for 24? Because there's got to be a, a certain weight of expectation upon them. And how do you follow a season like that? Well, I'll start with Lilia Vu because I think she was incredibly impressive come the second half of the season. Uh, went through a period, a down period after winning Chevron <coughs> and found her way. Uh, played with incredible confidence at AIG to cap off that second major title and then didn't stop there by picking up another one at the end of the season. Uh, I, I was impressed with how she performed and, and the, the level of poise going through that transition to become a number one player in the world, to be in the spotlight week in and week out. Uh, she seemed to handle it very well even after that little bit bump in the road. Uh, I always look at how people respond to tough moments and the way that she responded to, f to finish her year tells me that she's likely going to be here to stay uh, for quite some time. Ronin Yen, I think, is one of the most exciting players to watch on the LPGA Tour. It was fun to watch her win that major championship. She's got a youthful exuberance. She reminds me of a young Yanni Sen the way that she plays the game, and I say that intentionally, she plays the game. It doesn't feel uh, strategic. It doesn't feel technical. It doesn't feel manufactured. It feels like she plays golf. And for me, uh, as a fan of the game, I love to watch that. Karen, a lot of uncertainty in the men's game, what the future of pro golf will look like. Is mm -hmm. there an opportunity for the LPGA to tell better stories, to elevate their players when you consider the elevated purses and the wonderful venues that the women are competing on these days? I think that's a, that's a really broad subject, and I'm sure that the producers are going to get mad if I go into this really in depth. But um, in, in all honesty, yes, the, the, the venues make a big difference because they, they have a, a, a historical value to them where the players can test their game against shots that people have already seen the men play. So I think that that's important. Uh, the purse is increasing. That is also important because that adds perceived value to women's golf. If 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 they're playing for a big purse, uh, the people casually tuning say, "Well, this actually matters." The the, cor the corporations that are sponsoring these players and these tournaments uh, see value in, in in what they're watching. Therefore, I'm going to have value in what I'm watching too. And I think uh, that is all a, a really good thing. And with regards, you know, trying to capitalize on. Uh, the PGA Tour. Um, I think there is definitely a little window of opportunity opening up there. I think uh, the LPGA Tour is a very pure product right now. It's not really seen through the same eyes as, as men's golf is at the moment in terms of, you know, you have Live and you have the PGA Tour and there's this big fight going on between the two and are they going to come to an agreement or are they not? The LPGA doesn't have that. And I think almost 
the fact that they have that kind of are they going to come to an arrangement has kind of taken the heat off the LPGA tour a little bit. It's given the LPGA a little bit of time to breathe, to find their feet, and to move forward in a in a in a really good, clean way. Paige, following on that, I'm curious if you see opportunity here because we t we hear a lot about sponsors who might not stay with the PGA Tour because the value proposition doesn't work as well anymore. They're being asked to put in a lot more money for the same product. Is there an opportunity for the LPGA Tour to say, here, we're here, we are a value proposition? Without question. Uh, however, one of the, the lessons that I learned as a, as a tour member was understand <laughs> the motivation of the sponsor. And a lot of times the PGA Tour sponsors and the LPGA Tour sponsors do not align in their same motivation. LPGA Tour sponsors <coughs> typically, uh, or LPGA tournaments typically are played in smaller markets. They have more of a community atmosphere where they're creating a better quality of life for potentially, uh, I'm thinking of Dow, for example. Their home base is a small community. They want to have an activity, an, an environment that their uh, employees can be in part of. Things like that uh, motivate a company like Dow a PGA Tour sponsor may look for more television eyeballs. They want a, a greater audience in the United States, whereas the LPGA maybe has a greater uh, Asian television audience. So that's why LPGA sponsors get involved. So certainly, I think the opportunity is there. Why would you not go after PGA Tour sponsors that are leaving the PGA Tour uh, if they want to stay in the game of golf, if they want to stay in sports marketing? Then it makes a lot of sense. But do know that a lot of times the venues and the way that these sponsors are tr what they're trying to get out of their endorsement or sponsorship uh, might be different. Certainly a complex series of decisions that are made here. Karen, before we go, I wanted to ask you mm -hmm. one question. Who is trending under the radar here for 2024? <laughs> Who are you expecting a breakout year from and why is it Gabby Ruffles? <laughs> well, honestly, I mean, it's, it's just a play. I mean, she's got to be one of the favourites to come out and make a really big splash this year with the three Epson Tour wins. It's not only is she mentally tough, given the fact that she uh, missed getting her LPGA card because she really forgot to put in her application and had to go play on that Epson Tour, but winning three times, proving to herself that she has the ability to do it. I think she has the whole package, both the mental toughness side of it and also the, the talent physically to to really compete on the LPGA Tour. I can't wait to watch her play. Same. Looking forward to the coverage this week from Orlando. Stops. Paige, great to see you. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Sounds good, guys. Thanks. All right, folks. Still to come, can you imagine receiving a golf lesson from Tiger Woods? I should have asked when I had the chance. Wyatt Worthington II got the chance, and it changed the trajectory of his career in the game of golf. That story coming up. Welcome back to Golf Today on this Martin Luther King Jr. Day, celebrating the life and legacy of the great civil rights leader. An organ organization that continues to strive for change in golf is the Advocates Professional Golf Association. Established back in 2010 as a non-profit organization, the APGA works to bring greater diversity to the game of golf by operating professional tournaments and player development programs. APG Tour player Wyatt Worthington II graduated from Methodist University's PGA Golf Management Program in 2011 and became a PGA member professional in 2012. And after seeing success on the local pro circuit, high finishes the PGA Club Professional Championship earned him starts in three 
PGA Championships, finished the 2023 APGA Tour season with two wins to add to his win at the 2022 John Chippen Invitational, which earned him an exemption in the PGA Tour's Rocket Mortgage Classic. And how about this? Today, been named the recipient of the APGA Adrian Stills Award presented by Cisco, created to honor the APGA Tour player who best embodies the qualities of character, sportsmanship, courage, and giving back to the game and community. Wyatt joins us now. Congratulations. You're like an OG now, Wyatt. You've been around for a minute. What was your reaction to receiving this award? Uh, we'll circle back to that OG part. Uh, <laughs> uh, but to uh, winning this reward, uh, award, I was, uh, I was shocked. Uh, I'll be honest with you. There's great uh, finalists, you know, such as the names of, you know, John Baptiste, uh, Mike Bradham, Aaron Grimes, Andrew. Drew Walker, Kevin Hall, and Joey Stills. Like, these guys are the elite of elite. So I did not think I stood a chance, if I'm being uh, fully transparent with you guys. But I'm uh, definitely uh, blessed and highly favored, uh, nonetheless, to uh, be accepted for this award. Does it mean a little more to you, Wyatt, that this award is voted on by your peers in the locker room? Yeah, uh, it definitely means a ton. I, I definitely, it seems like I might owe a few of the guys a couple drinks of their choice. <laughs> uh, but yeah, to it really, really means a lot more that the actual players uh, were the ones that voted. So I'm still in disbelief uh, that, you know, the players uh, think highly of me. Uh, um, because it's definitely reciprocated on my end, and I just kind of just put my head down and, and focus on, you know, just doing the best I can on the golf course and just spreading positive energy and uh, good vibes along the way as well, too. Those guys are probably going to expect a round of drinks anyway because the award also comes with $25,000 yeah. towards your golf career. What kind of a difference does a, a money award like that make in terms of advancing your career at this stage? Yeah, it's life-changing, uh, to be honest with you. You know, with uh, this award and the good folks over at Empower, with Ed Murphy and Farmers, and don't forget uh, Eastside Golf as well, too. Like, it takes a village. I'll be lying to you if I said it It didn't. Um, you know, last time I checked, uh, golf was not the uh, – was on the expensive side when it comes to sports, when it comes to, you know, traveling, <laughs> the equipment, the – uh, you know, just playing practice rounds to the courses and, and the coaching and everything it takes to get to the highest level. You need a support system, and I'm uh, definitely going to uh, invest that into uh, my golf game to try to get to the next level. Wyatt, you're one of the PGA professionals who plays the game and teaches the game on the lesson tee yes, sometime from four to eight hours a day at the Golf Depot in Ohio. Are you finding maybe a good balance right now between playing and teaching because you're starting to win a lot more winning the John Shipping, winning on the APGA Tour? How would you describe the, the balance that you've struck? Yeah, uh, I'll be honest with you. Life is life in. <laughs> and what I mean by that is I've had a tough time finding that balance because as soon as I feel like I'm getting one or pinning my attention to one, then the other's getting away. So if you have any tips, I'm all ears, please, by all means. He's got 12-year-old triplets. He doesn't even know what he had for breakfast, much less <laughs> try to true. find a life <laughs> balance. Uh, you're 36 now, Wyatt. Are your ambitions the same in this game as they might have been eight or 10 years ago? Or, or is that, again, the balance question here? How have the goals shifted in the time that you've been out here? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Uh, I feel as though my journey has definitely been different uh, than other people. That's uh, had a less, that's had a lot less uh, hurdles, um, and 
uh, trials and tribulations, if you will. Uh, but to answer your question, my determination is unwavering. I know I have what it takes to get there. It's more so just the opportunity, access, and resources to do so. So if you actually think about it a little more uh, with that OG comment, um, I'm just slowly weird enough just trying to get, uh, you know, into the pursuit of, uh, you know, getting inside the ropes, if you will. Well, Billy Horschel, who, who speaks his mind very, very clearly and honestly, who supports the APGA Tour, said a couple of years ago at Southern Hills that corporate sponsors need to support players like you. Why are they? Have they come to support you in a way that you feel you need? That's a great question. Uh, if you would have asked me that uh, a couple of years ago or a few years ago, or to your point, you know, six to eight years ago, uh, I would give you a different answer than now. But, you know, fortunate enough that the APGA, uh, Adrian Stills and uh, Ken Bentley have gave us a platform for minorities to, you know, get to the highest level and showcase our uh, talents. And, you know, if it wasn't for them, I don't think, you know, not, not just speaking for myself, but speaking for others on the tour as well, too, uh, to help get us that support that we need. And uh, the, like you were just saying, these um, the corporate uh, the corporate dollars are are definitely helping us get to you know get inside the ropes and you can see uh, based on by their actions. This award also comes with exemptions into a couple of AP, APGA events. Wyatt, what does your competitive schedule look like for this year? Uh, that's a great question. I would love to play in all the APGA events. Uh, I believe the schedule just came out like a day or two ago. So. Uh, <laughs> We're both learning this as we go on, as we speak. So this is hot, fresh off the press. Uh, but yeah, I would love to, you know, play in the club pro and, and have another crack at a major and, you know, just any Monday qualifiers that I can do as well too and uh, get inside the ropes. So yeah, that's the aspirations. It's, it's never uh, changed. I want to get better, uh, you know, each and every day that I possibly can. And uh, yeah, once you get a taste of it, man, you, uh, you definitely want more of it. That's for sure. Well, Wyatt, before we teased this interview, we showed pictures of you with Tiger Woods, Tiger helping you with your game mm -hmm. with a lesson many, many moons ago, back when mm -hmm. you were a teenager. What exactly did he tell you and did it stick? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Uh, I remember the lesson like it was yesterday. Uh, if you can ever, if you guys know him, uh, I love the second one. Uh, so I just want to throw that out there. Uh, but no, and all... Uh, in all seriousness, he told me to, you know, just trust the process and believe it or not, the instruction that he was giving me, that's what my uh, instructor, mentor, and, you know, kind of philosopher was kind of telling me the same thing. So I knew I was on the right path that uh, I would say one of the things that stuck with me the most is that uh, success isn't linear. Um, you're going to have your ups and downs and you can't cheat the grind in this in this sport. Uh, so anything that you you know want, you have to earn it and you have to put the work in. So he uh, definitely showcases that work ethic by by uh, by all stretches of the imagination. Wyatt, it's Martin Luther King Jr. Day, an American holiday. Uh, as you reflect mm -hmm. on the journey of African-Americans in this game, I'm curious what you're seeing in the grassroots levels behind you, the young people are you optimistic about what this game is going to look like in 2040 and 2050 and down the road? Yeah, I see what you guys did there. You're great with the segues, uh, especially having uh, me on this day, uh, me having a dream as well, too. So you guys are good at what you do. Uh, but to answer the question, I feel as though 
uh, we're kind of just getting started. Um, I would like to see, and I know not just me and my peers and just more having uh, another demographic into this beautiful uh, sport. And I believe by that 2040 number, uh, we'll do that. You know, having the likes of, you know, Eastside Golf bringing a whole splash and canvas uh, into this game of golf, uh, pretty much giving entry points for people who wouldn't, one, have the exposure or two, interests alone um, and to, you know, just be your authentic self and bring you into uh, this beautiful game. I think uh, uh, it would definitely be moving in the right direction. But to press forward uh, into the uh, the matter, I, I feel as though if we have more people inside the ropes on the high, playing at the highest level, uh, having more representation, I believe that would definitely be a uh, good entry point to to getting more involvement to the next generation because that, that was the impact on me having, you know, Tiger Woods, seeing someone dominate at the highest level who looks like me and, and gave me the inspiration to do this. Well, congrats on earning the Adrian Stills Award name for the former PGA Tour player. I know you're out in San Diego. Give Doug Smith knuckles for us and best of luck <laughs> yeah. out at the Torrey Pines. Will do. Appreciate you guys. Thanks so much for having me. Well, before we go to break, a reminder that later this month, the APGA kicks off the season at Torrey Pines with a 36-hole Farmers Insurance Invitational, which features an elite field of 18 players and 36 holes with the final round airing on Golf Channel. That's on Sunday, January 28th. Back on golf today after a couple weeks in Hawaii, the PGA Tour returns to the continental U.S. for this annual three-course event. The California Desert, the American Express, gets underway Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern in the Coachella Valley. Let's take you back to 1985. Lanny Watkins won on the fifth extra hole of a playoff to win what was then called the Bob Hope Classic. 20-foot birdie putt was it finally enough to see the victory against Craig Stadler. It's time now for a past champions chat with the World Golf Hall of Famer. And Lanny won more than 20 times on the PGA Tour, so it feels as though any week we could actually have a past champions chat <laughs> because he won the Hawaiian Open twice as well, which was last week's tournament. Lanny, going back to that Bob Hope era, the kind of the glamorous era of pro-am golf, do you have any favorite memories from the, the guys you played with or the, the people that you hung out with back then? Well, it, it, it was definitely different than it is today, Amy. No question. Good talking with you guys this morning. I'm stuck in Hawaii. You guys are in Connecticut. Too bad for you. Uh, <laughs> I got I to tell you, it, you know, it was. I mean, the year I won the Bob Hope, I played with Johnny Mathis, Telly Savalas. He had the first cell phone ever. It was in his cart. It was about the size of a dictionary. And he kept answering all day with, who loves you, baby? So, you know, back in those days, that's what you did. You played with those guys and put up with what they did and uh, tried to survive the first four days. Does the tour miss that kind of old-school feel? Presidents, celebrities, stars of stage and screen and sport. Doesn't seem like we have it that much outside of the AT&T at Pebble. You know, I, I think somewhat, but I think it, it, in another instance, it's, it's good to have it be about the players when they're out there. Uh, it, it's always nice to showcase it whether it's uh, just a Wednesday program or on Champions Tour, maybe Wednesday, Thursday. Uh, I love having, you know, the entertainers around, especially the ones that really and truly love golf and aren't out there to make a statement and just be seen. Uh, the ones that love the game and care about it, it, it was always wonderful to have those guys there. Speaking of making statements, you birdied 16, 17, and 18 just to get into that playoff. 
with Craig Stadler. What do you remember about the quality of your golf? Well, it was pretty good. Uh, I, I was one back. Craig shot 66, and, and I caught him. I also eagled 14, so I was like four back with six to play. And Craig played those holes one under, and I caught him. I actually had about a 12-footer for birdie at 18. I mean, excuse me, for eagle at 18 on the 18th hole at Indian Wells. It would have won outright. We ended up going through five holes of sudden death. Stabler hit it up on the mountain a couple of times at 18. He took out a tumbleweed with one swing, a massive tumbleweed. It was something to see, but a lot of fight in Craig, and it was a good solid five holes. Alana, you did mention that you're sitting in Hawaii while we're here in Connecticut. So we're not going to go down to your level. We're not going to mention your Cowboys last night. <laughs> but you are out there because of the start of the Champions Tour season. Is anybody likely to dislodge Steve Stricker from the top of the Champions Tour in 2024? You know, I think it's going to be uh, a grind for somebody to really take him down. Steve Stricker is in great shape physically. If he wants to play and commits to play this tour full-time, uh, with some enthusiasm, I don't see any way he's going to have a letdown. Uh, it doesn't look like anything can go wrong in what he does with his golf swing. Uh, physically, he looks terrific. Uh, you know, I think he and Nicky are really having a time of their life playing, but he's got to commit to this tour. The one guy that you would think off right off the bat would be Stuart Sink, who was right in the hunt last week uh, at Wiley. And uh, Stuart's got to make more putts than I've seen him make when he's been out here. And he's also got to commit to this tour. I don't think he's going to play half over there and half here and have the kind of success he would like to have here. Yeah, Stewart turned 50 in May last year, Lanny, but he's still actually technically considered a rookie for 24 because he only made four starts. Is, is it possible to succeed in trying to keep a foot in both camps on the regular tour or the Champions Tour? Or are those days gone that the level of competition is just too high? Yeah, I, I think it's just too high, especially over here. And it's a different game, Eamon. Over here, you're playing a sprint. It's not a marathon. Uh, you get on the regular tour, it's four rounds. You've got room to make mistakes. Uh, over here, you do not. These guys are fine-tuned. They're ready to play. They can handle the courses we play. Uh, they're just ready to go. They make putts. They make a lot of birdies. You know, anywhere from 15 to 20 unders winning every week. You've got to come ready to get it done over here and ready to get it done quickly. Um, you know, I, I, I use this as an example. One of Steve Stricker's early years, I want to say he played like six times on this tour, the Champions Tour, and made about a million two or three. He played about 11 or 12 times over on the regular PGA Tour that year. Now, we're talking some years ago when he was even younger. He played about 12 times and made like 300,000. So, I mean, I can even do the math on that uh, and, and know that this tour is a simpler, you know, win for Steve Stricker. Tiger Woods is two years away from PGA Tour champions eligibility. He says he can't wait to have a golf cart to ride in. 20 years ago, who would have thought it was heresy to think that he would ever even consider being out there. What kind of boon would it be to the 15 overset if Tiger Woods commits to PGA Tour champions? You know, I think our tour is very strong. The, the purses continue to go up, Eamon. Uh, uh, some of our, our people with the PGA Tour headquarters, uh, Miller Brady and his staff, have done a fantastic job. We just tend to get better and better out here. We have outstanding sponsors. You put Tiger in that mix, and this tour is going to really blossom. I want to say every one of our tournaments is north of $2 million in prize money uh, and, and doing very, very well. We've got some guys that can play with Stuart St. Couples is going to be around this week, and uh, Steve Stricker and a lot of other Hall of Famers that are you know still right here. I'm still waiting for Ernie Els to hit a big hot streak. 
So, uh, you know, they're, they're, it's an exciting place to be. And we give a lot of attention to the, to the sponsors and the charities. And I think that's extremely important. Lanley, the, the old Bob Hope is now the American Express this week, and it's the second tournament in three weeks that does not have John Ram as a defending champion because he jumped to live. Were you surprised by that move he made? I was surprised, Eamon. I was very surprised. And, uh, you know, I, you don't see Fred Couples comment on a lot of things in golf very often, but I thought Fred Couples' comments about John Rahm were spot on. Uh, when he said 100 million wasn't enough, 200 wasn't enough, 300 wasn't enough, but 400's your number, and now you're doing it to take care of your family. If you couldn't take care of them with the first 100 million, you'd need some better financial people. So uh, I, I don't know. It, it, just, it just continues to look like a money grab to me. Now, I've never been in this position to go experience something like that, but, uh, it, you know, I don't know. These guys are making an awful lot of money, you know, even on the regular tour. It, it's, it's goofy the amount of money that, that they continue to make and continue to play for. Well, the knockoff effect is that some PGA Tour sponsors can't keep up. Webb Simpson, a major champ, says the model is broken. Wells Fargo, Farmers not uh, renewing their relationships with the PGA Tour. How concerned are you at the PGA Tour in terms of the sustainability of, of sponsors that are suddenly waving goodbye? Yeah, I don't think there's any question. And, and the all-time one to me was, uh, was what happened to the poor guys in Dallas uh, the salesmanship club thought they had a deal done with Raytheon. Then the PGA Tour nixed that deal because they said they didn't. They dealt weapons to the Saudis. Well, Raytheon's an American company, and now we've got a a, a Korean food company going to sponsor the Byron Nelson. You know, something's backwards in this world when we're not getting things done the right way. You know, when you don't want an American company to be a sponsor of the Byron Nelson Classic. So there are other issues that have to get straightened out. I tell you who's going to be the big beneficiary of this is the Champions Tour. PGA Tour champions, we support charities. We'll give the sponsors all the attention they want and deserve. And uh, I think you'll see some of those sponsors headed our way and, and we'll just be a stronger tour. Danny, you won 21 times on the PGA Tour and had career earnings of $6.3 million dollars. The guys these days, they feel as though they ought to be playing for $25 million purses. Have they lost their minds? I was shocked last year. I mean, in, in an answer to live, they went to $20 million purses. I didn't see what was wrong with taking 10 and going to 12 or 15 even. You know, do you always have to go to the very top end right off the bat? Uh, you know, I, I think it was a mistake. Uh, I, if I'm playing the regular tour when I was playing and we're supposed to play an 8 or $10 million tournament, and now you tell me we're going to play for 12, I would have been ecstatic. I didn't need to go to 20, but, uh, you know, that's, that's the way they tend to think these days. And I, I don't, you know, it, it just continues to look like, you know, who can get the most money and they don't have a money list anymore, for heaven's sakes. It's FedEx points. Do, do the players need to be contracted, do you think? Because every other sport, major sport, certainly in the United States, contracts the talent, so at least they're guaranteeing a product to sponsors, to broadcasters. And because of the independent contractor nature of golf, it's never really been part of the PGA Tour. Is that one thing that Liv got right, that you could say they do actually need to contract the talent? I, I think our model was pretty sustainable, uh, Eamon, and it's been, it's been sustainable for a long, long time, back into the 50s, 60s. You know, when guys want to play, they play. Uh, obviously, if they're making maybe more money, they're not going to play as many events. But our tour is very, very deep. You're developing young stars all the time. 
I, I think what we had was fine. You know, if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It's worked well for a long, long time. I, I don't know that, that they need to be contracted. Uh, we tried designated tournaments back when I was playing, and they didn't work out very well. The guys didn't like being told where to go, you know, what to do, where to play. Uh, it, it's, you know, here again, though, we weren't talking about the dollars they're talking about today. You know, if you're going to play for some of these monies that they're playing for, then you, you are going to owe, owe somebody a, a massively representative field. Lanny, thanks for hopping on. Don't ever change. I don't think you will. Uh, enjoy your time in Hawaii. <laughs> well, I'm stuck here. I don't have to be on the air until Thursday, so uh, I've got a little <laughs> beach time left in me. Enjoy that me time, and great to spend time with the World Golf Hall of Fame member, Lanny Watkins, who always speaks clearly and speaks his mind and, and talks about these astronomical figures that in some ways are, are, are changing the conversation, saying, hey, come to the PJ Tour Champions. There's plenty of folks that will be happily you know, playing the pro-ams and, and have some sponsorship relationships with those players. And he ain't no wallflower, Lanny, mm. when it comes to speaking his mind on any issue. And I think that's a common view among veterans who contributed a great deal to the PGA Tour over the years who feel an ownership stake yeah. in it. Uh, the idea of what happens at tournaments that suddenly aren't bestowed with the grace of, of the, the elite players. You know, he won the Hawaiian Open twice, the, now the yeah. Sony Open, back in the 88 and 91. He won this week at the Amex. He's won a lot of those tournaments. And I think guys who have that kind of a deep history on the PGA Tour are going to be concerned at this idea of a caste system being created mm. between tournaments and that some loyal sponsors, some loyal venues are going to struggle perhaps to get more elite players. If they don't have some kind of personal historical connection to the tournament, it becomes progressively more difficult to attract those guys to the field every week. And that's the reality of kind of where we're going. It's always been that way to a yeah. certain extent. Now it's kind of been formalized and that's not really on the tour in my mind, that's on the players. The players are trying to create an, a very elite, rarefied tour that exists above everything else that is just simply one lucrative pot after another. And you, you just can't move away from the fact that where we are now is based almost entirely on players having a sense of their worth that is not reflected in any market that has ever assessed. And stunning to read about the departure of longtime PJ Tour companies like Farmers, like Wells Fargo, Honda, and Lanny, of course, talking about the Sales Mission Club in Dallas. It's, it's, these are changing times. It is, and some of those companies do it for different reasons. It's yes. Simply they move their Other challenges out of different sports, but it does speak to an environment of uncertainty. No doubt about it. For more great conversations like the one you just heard with Lanny Watkins, be sure to check out Golf Channel on YouTube. Folks, stay with us. We're counting down the top nine moments of the week when Golf Today returns. Back on golf today, some final thoughts on this MLK Monday. Uh, just coming back from the, the page and Karen conversation preview in the LPGA Tour, to me, one of the great storylines this year is going to be Lydia Ko. Because, you know, she's talked about retiring at 30. She's only 26, but she's only two points shy of the Hall of Fame. She mm. wants to play one more Olympics. She, she wins a major. She wins two LPGA events. She's in the Hall of Fame. It, it's kind of frightening to think that the better her season is, the more likely it is to be her last. She's going to drop the mic or, or drop the sandwich, as it were. Say it ain't so. I love watching Lydia Ko play golf. Golf Central at 4 p.m. with Anna Jackson. we got the Golf Today podcast, Golf Channel on YouTube as well. We will see you tomorrow.